beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, as you read about the last days of the Lord Jesus here on earth, you are left wondering and perplexed, perhaps, about several things, especially about the evil that unleashes itself against the Lord Jesus. You observe the depravity of man and to what depths man can fall if he allows himself to be swept along by the evil forces. But there is one thing that is particularly hard for us to understand. I know it is for me. And that is how it is possible that one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus could betray him. How is it possible that a man such as Judas, who has been around the Lord Jesus for well over two years, to do what he did? Just think about it. He, just like the rest of the apostles, had seen the miracles that the Lord Jesus had performed. He had seen how he raised the dead, how he healed the sick. He had seen the great power that he possessed. He had experienced firsthand how he could see right through people. And Judas had also heard the words that he spoke and observed that he always spoke the truth. In short, he had personally observed and experienced what an incredible human being he was. Yet, in spite of that, he rejected the Lord Jesus. He cowardly betrays him. He resolutely forges ahead and goes to the enemy and promises to hand him over at the most opportune moment. Judas presents himself to the leaders of the Jews, to the chief priests, whom Jesus had condemned as having Satan and not God as their Father in heaven. He hands them over to such evil men for a paltry sum of money. You may say, well, Judas must especially have been a wicked and perverse man. How else would you explain his actions? What else would him make would make him act the way that he did? Now, how do you answer that question? How do you understand a man like him? We might be tempted to draw up a psychological profile of Judas to find out what his fatal character flaw was. Maybe think of him as a sociopath or something. Or we could demonize him, as has been done often in the past. He is held up as the epitome of evil. Indeed, even today, his name is mentioned along that of other traitors that this world has known. The name Judas has become a curse. It's identified with treachery and greed and disloyalty. And therefore, no parent today would think of naming their child Judas. But why? 
what exactly was the sin? Does he deserve the reputation that he has? Well, there's no doubt that his sin was great. The depth of his depravity knew no bounds. However, Judas' sin was not as unique as you might think. It is not so that Judas was a great exception in the history of mankind. No, and this may surprise you to hear me say this, but when it comes right down to it, we are guilty of the same sin and depravity as Judas, and we have the potential to do the same thing as he did. Judas is one of us. He's sitting in the pews. But that may make you wonder, for this makes you comfortable in your seat, uncomfortable in your seat, doesn't it? You may ask yourself, could I really be a Judas? Could I sink that low? Would I do something as despicable as that? Surely not I, Lord. And so you question yourself, and that's good. It's also what the disciples did. They were disturbed by the possibility. And so they, just like us, had to look into their own hearts. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus wanted them to do. And that's what he wants you and me to do as well. I will preach to you about how the Lord Jesus confronts all of us in the betrayal of Judas. And then we will see that he does three things. He exposes, in the first place, his disciples. In the second place, his betrayer. And in the third place, us. Jesus' disciples were ordinary men. They were not any different from you and me. They were sinful men with all their faults and shortcomings. And they also had their own peculiar personalities. For example, Thomas. Thomas was a careful man. He was not impulsive. He wanted to be sure before he would believe. He was also an honest man. He admitted his doubt. He knew what he was thinking. Peter was somewhat different. He was much more impulsive. He was not as careful as Thomas and the others. But he was also an honest man. You knew what he was thinking. He would tell you what was on his mind. He didn't leave you guessing. And then there were men such as James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. They were ambitious men. Their zeal was great. And they did their utmost to show their worth. And that's also why they thought that they should have a privileged position in the kingdom that the Lord Jesus was about to establish on earth. And for that reason, their mother asked Jesus on their behalf which one of the brothers would be sitting on the right and which one on the left. But actually, that's a question that kept all of the disciples busy. They were all ambitious men. They were all intent on making their mark in the world. They were interested in one thing, to establish the kingdom of God here on earth, wherein, in, wherein they had a prominent position. 
They wanted things to be like they were in the past. During the glory days of the nation of Israel, when Israel was a nation to be reckoned with. Indeed, that was their ambition right to the very end. For even after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, just before he ascended into heaven, that was the one question that was uppermost on their minds. For then they asked the Lord Jesus, as we know from Acts 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so, as far as that goes, Judas was not any different from any of them. He was also an ambitious man. And he too was disillusioned about the political circumstances of his beloved country. And that is why he joined the Lord Jesus and the other disciples in the first place. He thought that they could make a difference. He wanted to escape the yoke of the Roman oppressors. Like Thomas, he was a careful man. He was not impulsive like Peter. He was even somewhat reserved, for he kept his thoughts to himself. The others did not really know what he was thinking. He could keep a secret. He seemed like a man in control of things, a man in control of his emotions. And no doubt the others also noted that about him. That is why they made him the treasure. He was the kind of man you could depend on. He would not spend the little money they did have on frivolous things, spending foolishly. But there's one thing that the disciples did not know about him. They did not realize that slowly he was becoming totally disillusioned with Jesus. It wasn't, the, it wasn't going the way that he would like. Judas could see the writing on the wall. The ministry of the Lord Jesus was not going in the right direction. For one thing, they were spending all their money. Money is needed in order to gain influence. It was needed to overthrow the Romans. But their coffers were getting emptier and emptier. And furthermore, they did not seem to be making any political gain either. People were not rallying behind them the way that they should. At least not the leadership of Israel. They weren't making any headway. They weren't getting anywhere. And so in the end, Judas, the careful planner and thinker, wants to get out before it's too late. He foresees that the whole thing is going to be a fiasco. And so he begins to plot and to scheme. He went to the Pharisees and the chief priests and told them that for money he would hand over the Lord Jesus to them. And how those Priests, those chief priests and scribes will have loved his coming. How they will have wrung their hands with delight. Finally, we'll be able to get our revenge. Finally, we'll be able to put them in his place and get rid of him. One of his own is going to betray him because he too is fed up with him and can't stand to be around him. How it also hurts us when one of us is 
especially a prominent member of the church, is exposed as an astonished person, as a fraud, that plays right into the hands of Satan. And people wring their hands and say, see, they're not as good as they make themselves out to be. Look at those hypocrites. And in this way, Judas also played right into the hands of Satan. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on in the mind of Judas. He knew what he was thinking, and he knew what he was doing. Yet note well that Jesus does not expose him. To do that would have been premature. Judas must do what he had set out to do. And Judas must also be given every chance to repent from his course of action. And that is why in the upper room, when they were together to eat the Passover meal, he stated, just as they were eating, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What an ominous statement. What a thunderclap in the midst of tranquility. He says this to everybody there. He does not single Judas out. And no one suspects him either. But he does cast a shadow of a doubt on all of them. His words hit a raw nerve. The act of eating together is an act of closeness, of togetherness, of solidarity. The eating of the Passover meal is especially such an intimate activity. And now the Lord Jesus makes a statement in the midst of all that that makes them shake in their boots. He shatters their peace. He points a finger at each and every one of them. He does not give any indication of who the betrayer might be. And so they're all left to wonder and to ponder. They're all left in an uncertain state of mind. And yet, as horrible as these words of the Lord Jesus were, no one doubted his words. No one thought that the Lord Jesus might be making a mistake. No, they knew him well enough. He doesn't play games. Their first thought is not to point their finger at others. That's because the Lord Jesus looked at each and every one of them. And so their first thought was not, would, this, would he be the one or he be the one? No, the Lord Jesus asked them, look at themselves. And he says to them, one by one, you, one of you is going to betray them. And so then they each say, surely, not I, Lord, not me, is it? Do you think I would be capable of such a thing? Could it be that my love for you would not be enough to prevent such a horrible thing? Is that possible, Lord? You see, this was a very tense moment for them. The words of the Lord Jesus cut them to the heart. They had seen the Lord Jesus at work and how he can see right through people. And now he directs a question such as that their way. One of you will betray me. 
And you may wonder why the Lord Jesus makes a statement in the way that he does. Why does he leave them in such suspense? Why does he leave them guessing? Why does he make them doubt? Why does he say such a thing during their last night together? And there's only one answer to that question. The Lord Jesus wants them to examine themselves. He wants each and every one of them to realize what they are capable of. Yes, they could do such a thing. For they are not any different from anybody else. In essence, they are all betrayers. For that is the nature of man. He takes the way of least resistance. He goes with the flow. By nature, we want to protect our own hide. And that's why they needed the Savior. You and I, we are not any different today. Peter, the one on whom the Lord Jesus is going to build his church, Peter, the rock, he's about to betray him, isn't he? The cock will crow three times, and Peter will know what he has done. Do you think that you or I would be any different from Peter? How often do we not betray the Lord Jesus? Think about it. We betray him when we lie to cover up our own sins. We betray him when we put our trust in earthly treasures. We betray him when we selfishly look after our own interests first and the, and the interest or well-being of others. We betray him when we go along with the sinful activities of the world. We betray him when our ambition prevents us from speaking up when something fishy is going on, when we don't want to rock the boat. And so we go along with things because we don't want to lose our job or our standing with our friends. We don't want to lose face. And that is why the Lord Jesus made that statement. He wants the disciples and therefore also us to look in our own hearts and to make us realize how corrupt we all are. To make us realize that we are capable of any perversion and any sin. It is a warning to the disciples and to all of us not to stand easily in judgment of others. For you see, brothers and sisters, the great sin of Judas is not the fact that he betrayed the Lord Jesus. Men have done worse things than he did and yet been forgiven. For as you know, there is forgiveness for every sin. There is not a sin so great or the Lord Jesus will forgive it. But you must also seek such forgiveness. You must humble yourself before God and your fellow man. You must trust in God that he will protect you and exalt you when you stand firm in the truth. You must at all times want to put your life totally into the hands of the Lord Jesus and to have faith with him. Ultimately, that's what the other 11 also did. From all accounts in the New Testament, it is clear that the faithful disciples, the other 11, 
that they actually allowed themselves to be corrected. They allowed Christ's Holy Spirit to enter them and to lead them to the truth time and again. Time and again, over and over, Jesus humbled them, and they also allowed themselves to be humbled. For what sinners they were. Look at Peter. Look at how he sinned against the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus forgave him, didn't he? And he did more than that. He embraced him in his great love for him. What then was the great sin of Judas? It was this. He did not want to be corrected. He did not want to humble himself. He remained full of selfish ambition. He remained proud and arrogant. Judas had his heart set on a prominent place at the side of the Lord Jesus. He wanted a seat on his side by hook or by crook. He wanted men to admire him. He wanted to have power over others. In a word, he wanted glory, his own glory, not God's glory. And that is why he became so resentful and disillusioned that he betrayed the Lord Jesus. For he knew it wasn't going to happen the way that he thought it was going to happen. Think about the sons of Zebedee in that correction who allowed themselves to be corrected. For they openly confessed their earthly aspirations. But then the Lord Jesus set them back on the right track. When James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were corrected by the Lord Jesus, they accepted it. They didn't go on as before, or sure, it will have been hard for them. They had a certain vision. They had certain plans for the future, and they had to rethink and to adjust. And that's never easy. Nevertheless, they did so. They took the rebuke. You see, that's one thing Judas didn't do. He wanted to maintain his own agenda. He did not allow himself to be corrected. He wanted to go on with his own life in the way that he saw fit. He wanted to trust in his own ways and to do what was good in his own eyes. Judas was a proud man. He was a stubborn man. And because of it, he became a condemned man. And now then, what about you and me? We too, brothers and sisters, we are betrayers. There are no exceptions. It is horrible that that must be said about us. We fall into the same sin time and again. But the question is, do you allow yourself to be corrected? Do you struggle with your sin? Do you humble yourself before God? Do you allow yourself to be humbled or do you hide your ambitions and your aspirations? Do you hide what really drives you in life? Judas thought that money and prestige were the answer to everything. He wanted to make a name for himself. What about you? What's your ambition? Is that also what you want? Is it your aim in life, for example, to heap up riches for yourself so that others can admire who you are and what you are capable of? 
Do you have a hidden or perhaps not so hidden agenda that will bring you to that goal? Or is it your aim to make your mark in life some other way? And by your position in the community because of your superior education or your superior job or business. Is that what you want out of life? Do you, on the one hand, pretend to be a disciple of Jesus, while in reality you are not? Do you put your honor and glory above his? That's always the question. Because if that's who you are, and you do not allow yourself to be corrected time and again, then your ambition will also bring you to the same goal that Judas reached. It wasn't, however, the goal that he envisaged, was it? It was the opposite. He ended up totally in the arms of Satan. Beloved congregation, the Lord wants you and me to examine our lives. He wants us to examine where our lives are going. He wants you and me to ask, is it I, Lord? Because when you, but when you ask that question, ask it with a view to Jesus. Ask that question as you look him square in the face in the full realization what you have done to him because of your sin and what you do to him every day. For when the disciples asked the question, their concern was, first of all, for themselves, wasn't it? They were anxious to be acquitted of any wrongdoing. They did not really think about the Lord Jesus himself. And just think about it. He was about to be betrayed. He said so himself. He was about to be thrown to the wolves. He was about to suffer and to die at the hands of his enemies. He was about to be abandoned by man and by God. A most horrible suffering was about to take place. Their concern was not for him, but for themselves. Surely, not I, Lord. I couldn't be the one. There is no way I would contribute to such betrayal in any way. Could I really do such a thing? Yes. In their question, they are concerned about their own well-being, and they don't see how culpable they are. Oh, they see it later on. They were not thinking about the, per- the terrible predicament that the Lord Jesus was in. They were so busy with themselves. And that's our nature. And that's why the Lord Jesus wanted them to examine themselves. He wants them to take a close look at themselves so that they can see themselves for who they really are. And by asking the question, he planted a seed in them. It's only later on that they begin to realize the question that he asks. And they feel ashamed of themselves, ashamed of the selfishness, their lack of vision, their lack of concern for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus wants us 
to do the same. He also wants us to examine ourselves. And when you give the right answer to that question, then you will also realize what a sinner you are. And then you will come to the wonderful insight about what Jesus has done for us. For then you also realize from what you have been delivered. You have been delivered from your sinful state. You have been given a new life in spite of your treacherous ways. And it is for that reason that all the days of our lives you must ask, is it I, Lord? Ask it. For if you want to know if you are taking the wrong road, for you want to know that if you are taking the wrong road, the road to destruction, you ask because you want to be set straight. Oh, sure, Judas also asked that question. But he only asked because he did not want to be discovered. And then the Lord Jesus exposes him. Outwardly, Judas was not any different from the other disciples, but inwardly he was. Judas didn't ask because he wanted to be set straight. No, he asked because he wanted to cover his tracks. We may be able to fool people, but you cannot fool God. And so, when you ask the question, ask it because you abhor deceit, because you want to walk in integrity. Ask because you love the Lord and you don't want anything to stand in the way of your relationship with him. Ask because you know that when you do, he will forgive you. Wonderful. Pray to the Lord as David did in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if I from your ways depart. Amen. Let's sing from Psalm 26, the stanzas 1, 2, and 4.
Let us give thanks in prayer. Father in heaven, once again, you have come to us with your word to confront us with the reality of our depravity, how by nature we're all betrayers because we have our own agenda and our own ambitions. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us and to keep us on the straight and narrow path. Renew us, renew our minds and our hearts, Lord, and that we may go on the right path. And Lord, that you steer us there and that we also allow ourselves to be steered there, that we allow ourselves to be humbled. Father in heaven, may Satan not get hold of us. Lord, defeat him in our hearts, for you are already the victor through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In him, we have the victory, as long as we also want to embrace him. And Father, help us to do that. Help us to put our trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that also during times of rejection, times of difficulty, times when we want to go with the flow. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us in our resolve to lead righteous lives. And Father, be with each and every one of us in our congregation. Be with those who are in the grip of sin, who are on the road to destruction if they do not repent because sin has taken hold of them. Father, help them to break with that sin and that they may go on the right path Father, grant that we may be instruments in your hands so that we may help one another when we are falling, when we are straying, and that we may bring one another on the right path. Help us to do that within our families, our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents. Oh Lord, that in this way we may be a blessing to one another. And Father, grant us your grace. Lord, Forgive us our sins, and we pray that you will always be with us, Lord, and we thank you for your warnings. We thank you for the love that you have shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that he suffered and died and was victorious over death and over Satan for our sakes. And we pray in his name. Amen. The offertory this morning is for the building fund. Um, that's in the back of the church, sorry. And uh, the, um, the offertory is for Rehoboth Christian Ministries. You now have the opportunity to make your offering to the Lord. And afterwards, we will say in closing from Psalm 51, the stanzas 1, 4, and 5.